Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, ratchetandratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 12. Sunday, Jackson took a vacation from being chief. He changed into ordinary clothes, a button-down shirt and jeans, and got in his off-duty vehicle, a Ford pickup. The truck did not have police radio and he left behind his cell phone, too. He did, however, store his three fifty seven Magnum in the glove compartment. He drove by Belinda Moss's home and picked her up. He had asked her to prepare a picnic lunch for them. He had beer and soda in a cooler in the back. Belinda Moss did not fit the narrow image of beauty that was promoted on music videos, trendy TV shows, and magazine covers. She was a dark-skinned, full-figured woman with wide hips, and she stood barely over five feet tall. But to Jackson, she was gorgeous. He found her full lips erotic, and she was a heck of a kisser, and gazing into her dreamy brown eyes made him lose track of time. Message. They had been dating for five months. Like him, Belinda had lost her spouse, though she did not have any children. They had known each other their entire lives, both of them having grown up in Mason's Corner, and with her being the town librarian and involved in various affairs in the town, their paths had often crossed. In spite of how well they knew each other, Jackson often felt strange dating her, as though he were living the life of someone else. After Paulette died, he never thought he'd enjoy a meaningful relationship with another woman. But the loneliness of the widower's life had been too much for him to bear. Even as he admitted that he yearned for the companionship of a good woman, he kept his relationship with Belinda low-key, especially around Jalil. Jalil knew he and Belinda were involved, but he was not aware of the seriousness of the relationship. Jackson didn't know how to tell him either. Jalil would interpret Jackson's relationship with Belinda as a betrayal of his mother. Chalk it up as one more problem he had with his son. He was taking the day off from work partly so he could get a break from Jalil, too. The boy could handle being home alone for one night. You haven't told me where we're going, Van, Belinda said. Away from this town, he said. Somewhere quiet. Belinda found a jazz station on the radio. The soothing sounds of saxophones, trumpets, and pianos filled the cabin. The day was humid, but gray. Earlier, the sun had disappeared behind the clouds and had not returned. He took I-55 south to Ennett Lake, 
There were other lakes closer to town, but he wanted to go outside the immediate area, where no one would recognize him. He'd booked a night at a modest hotel, too. He didn't plan to go back home until tomorrow. As he drove, he and Belinda didn't talk much. He didn't like to run his mouth all day anyway, and she respected his tendency towards contemplated silence. She was a fine woman. At Innit Lake, they found a picnic table in a quiet, shaded area of the park and unpacked the food and drinks. Belinda had brought her portable boombox. A Barry White song drifted from the speaker. Jackson turned down the radio volume. Belinda looked at him curiously. Want to tell you why I had to take this trip, Jackson said. He put down his turkey and cheese sandwich. I haven't been myself lately. Had to get away for the day and figure out what's gotten into me. Belinda's eyes were kind. Van, you've had a lot to deal with lately, with all the crime going on in town. You're stressed. Everyone needs to take a break sometimes. Yeah, but that ain't it. Doc Bennett called this morning, asked me about the young lady in the hospital that got bit by the dog. I laid in the dock like I hadn't laid in anyone in years. It ain't my style to talk to folks like that. It really does sound like stress, honey. Don't be so hard on yourself. Nah, nah. You know what it is? What is it? He sipped his beer, looked away into the trees. I'm scared. Belinda took his hand in hers. Doc Bennett's digging into something that's going to explain why things ain't been right in the town, he said. I can feel it. Right here in my gut. Don't know what he's going to find, but it scares the hell out of me to think about it. Doc Bennett's a sharp man, Belinda said. And you're a brave man. You can handle anything. But I was too scared to talk to him, Jackson said. He shook his head. Whatever's going on, I don't want to know about it. It, it ain't my problem. He couldn't believe what he had said. It was as though someone else was working his mouth like a ventriloquist dummy. He did not feel as if he were in control of his own thoughts. Lord, what was wrong with him? You only need to take some time to relax, honey, Belinda said. She rubbed his hand. Let's not talk about Mason's Corner anymore. He nodded and picked up his beer. He downed the rest of the can in a few gulps. Then he popped the tab on another. Belinda watched. Her face creased with concern. I'm going to get drunk, sweetheart, he said. Just this once. Can't stand to know what's going on in my head. Got to shut it down. Got to shut it down to get some damn peace. Silently, Belinda reached across the table, plucked the truck keys from where they lay beside his arm, and dropped them into her purse. Shanice Stevens had awakened, but the Franklin, she looked ill. Her skin had an unhealthy pallor, redness marred her eyes, and her voice was raspy. Including Shanice, there were five people in the hospital room. Franklin, Ruby, the girl's mother, and her physician, Dr. Dijon, a middle-aged Haitian man who had practiced medicine in the town for many years. Franklin explained his presence by telling them that he was there to pick up his wife. A true statement and enough for them to leave him alone to observe. The physician and mother were too focused on Shanice to worry much about him. Can somebody close those blinds? Shanice asked. The sunlight makes me itch. 
She squirmed under the covers. Franklin pursed his lips, made a mental note to himself. Ruby lowered the Venetian blinds on both windows. While Dr. Dijon checked the girl's heart rate, Shanice complained of being hungry. I'm starving, Mama, she said. When are y'all going to bring me something to eat? In a moment, darling, Dr. Dijon said. He squinted. This can't be correct. What is it? Miss Stevens said. Her heart rate. It's 31 beats per minute. That's the heart rate of a patient who is virtually comatose. Obviously, she's awake and alert. Franklin frowned. He didn't like this at all. Please bring me something to eat, Shanice said. Ruby, Dr. Dijon said with a sharp nod. Ruby hurried out the room. Franklin moved to the foot of the bed. The doctor fussed over the heart rate, taking it again, while Miss Stevens fussed over the doctor. Franklin focused on the girl. It was heartbreaking to look at her. She was only a shell of the vivacious, pretty young lady that he remembered seeing around town. She has an aversion to sunlight, he thought. A naturally low heart rate. Red eyes. Pale skin. The data was persuasive. He decided to take a risk and test his theory. Tell me about the man and the dogs, Franklin said to her. The doctor and Miss Stevens gaped at him as though he had wandered out of a mental institution. But Shanice raised her head and her eyes shone with a strange glee. The man is the master's son, Shanice said. She spoke in a monotone, as if repeating words she had learned from rote memorization. The dogs are the master's servants. Jesus Christ, Franklin thought. It's true. Acceptance of the impossible washed over him, like cold water. Miss Stevens looked terrified. Baby, what are you talking about? Shanice blinked. Her eyes became clouded and confused again. Um, Mama, when can I eat? What is happening here, Franklin thought. She appears to be vacillating between various states of consciousness, like someone in a trance. Dr. Dijon was looking at the girl oddly, too. But Miss Stevens only cooed and patted her daughter's hand. Ruby's going to bring you something to eat, sweetheart. Just hold tight. Ruby entered the room, carrying a plastic tray laden with food and water. I couldn't find an orderly, so I brought her something to eat myself, Ruby said. Shanice's eyes blazed when she saw Ruby, but the girl did not appear to notice the food. She began to sit up. Gripped by a premonition of doom, Franklin snatched his wife's arm before she approached the bed. Stay away from the girl, Ruby, he said. All of you, get away from her. They stared at Franklin as if debating whether to get away from him instead. Shanice hissed. Suddenly, her gaze was feral and deadly. She drew back her lips from her teeth. Her fangs glistened like razor shards. Why are you fucking up my flow, Doc? She said. Who sent you here? Franklin took a step backwards. Shanice tore away the bed sheet and sprang up. She stood on the mattress, her gown billowing around her legs. Shock had paralyzed the doctor, Miss Stevens, and Ruby. 
but Franklin grabbed a knife off the food tray Ruby held. Stay right there, Shanice. He brandished the blade. Ruby, go get help. We've got to subdue the girl. Go now. Ruby dropped the tray and fled out of the room. Shanice cackled. The sound made Franklin's blood turn cold. <laughs> Can you inject her with something, doctor? Franklin said in a shaky voice. Anesthesia? Anything? Dr. Dijon stuttered. Uh, let, let me see. He moved away from the bed, patting his pockets. Miss Stevens reached for her daughter, hesitantly. Tears rolled down her cheeks. No! Get away from her, Franklin said. My baby, Miss Stevens cried. Serping quick, the girl seized her mother by the neck and lifted the woman in the air with one arm. The woman gagged, her legs kicked. Shanice tossed her mother across the room as if she weighed no more than a Barbie doll. Screaming, the woman hurtled through the air and crashed against the wall. She struck her head and blacked out. She has superhuman strength, Franklin thought. With only a knife to protect himself, he didn't stand a chance against this fiend. Dr. Dijon had finally pulled out a syringe. His voice quavered. Stay still, young lady. I only want to help you. You aren't pumping any more drugs into me, Shanice said. She leapt off the bed. Dr. Dijon lunged at her, driving the syringe forward like a lance, and she snared the doctor's wrist. She squeezed. Bones cracked with a brittle snap, and the doctor howled. The girl yanked the syringe out of his hand, raised it high, and plunged the needle into the man's eye. Wailing, he collapsed to the floor, the syringe protruding from his eyeball. Sickened and terrified, Franklin looked to the door. What was taking Ruby so long to get back with help? Even as he raised the question, he answered it in his head. It was a Sunday afternoon, and they were in a small hospital. There were few people on duty that hour. Perhaps not enough people to subdue this vampire. She possessed the strength of several men. That decided him. He took off towards the doorway. But she was as fast as she was strong. Before he could get out, she seized his arm and threw him. He slammed against the wall, pain rattling through his shoulder, the knife spinning out of his fingers. He slid to the floor, but he did not lose consciousness. He almost wished he had. The vampire whammed the door shut and angled a chair underneath the knob, effectively barricading the door against easy entry. Although it hurt to move, Franklin crawled to the knife, grasped it once again. Please, don't hurt us anymore, he said. Was there a trace of humanity left in her? Or has she succumbed completely to the inhuman urges? So hungry, she said. She hugged herself, digging her nails into her flesh. Her body shook, as if she were experiencing a mild seizure. Hungry. Didn't want to hurt anyone. I'm just so hungry. Shouting voices outside, fists pounded against the door. The knob twisted back and forth. We'll get help for you, Shanice, Franklin said. Please, lie on the bed. We'll feed you. 
can't, I can't. Her head whipped back and forth, her hair swinging in her eyes. Must feed. I must feed. I need blood. Oh, God. She began to sob. <laughs> Franklin carefully got to his feet. He was not far away from the door. He could not allow her to bite him. That was his greatest fear. He would rather let her kill him than allow her to bite him. Tears ran down the girl's face. She clenched her hair in her fists and shrieked. He ran to the door. He kicked away the chair and it spun away, turning end over end. He wrenched the knob and flung open the door. Behind him, Shanice screeched. Eyes wide and frightened, Ruby and two male orderlies retreated from the doorway. Franklin dove outside the room, but Shanice's hands hooked over his shoulders like claws. He hit the floor on his stomach, the girl attached to his back. Get her off me! Get her off me! Get her off me! Her breath hot against his cheek, her teeth plunged into the side of his neck, like a double pinprick. He howled. The men wrestled the girl off him, but she dipped her head and bit into the forearm of one of the men. The guy shouted in pain, and both of the men lost their grip on her. Weeping, blood dripping from her chin, Shanice raced down the hallway. The men chased after her, but she soon vanished. Franklin's puncture wound throbbed. Coldness pulsated in his neck and inched through his bloodstream, as if ice water had been injected into him. Ruby knelt and cradled Franklin's head in her lap. She was crying. He grasped his wife's hand, held it tight. I could already feel it, the numbness spreading through me, he said. Give me an antibiotic, something that may slow the infection, and call David. I must speak to him before I'm not myself anymore. David and Naya had moved into the kitchen. He sat at the dinette table, the crutches propped against a chair, while Naya prepared dinner. King lay near the refrigerator and watched Naya with great interest, alert for a morsel that might drop to the floor. David reviewed the letter for perhaps the tenth time. Dear Mr. Hunter, I have followed your career with great interest since the publication of your first novel. Your formidable talent has been evident from the beginning. The world of letters has been enriched tenfold by your work and will continue to reap the benefits of your genius long after you have departed. Now that I have generously stroked your lion's ego and engaged your attention, shall I commence my purpose for this correspondence? My name is Elizabeth. I have been informed by my associates that you seek an audience with me. I find this discovery rather serendipitous, as for some time I have considered holding an audience with you as well. The reason for my interest? The reason for my interest? I am intrigued by the recurring themes that I see in your literature. Need I restate them? You know your obsessions. There are answers, Richard. You will uncover them in due time. But you will require assistance. One does not thwart death alone. At a later date, you will receive instructions on how to communicate directly with me. Do not respond to the London return address printed on the envelope. I use a remailing service to maintain my privacy. Until then, 
Be comforted by my assurance that your search will soon draw to a close. Regards, Elizabeth. It was the most puzzling letter David had ever read. Who was Elizabeth? He had read every article and interview he could find about his father's personal life, and no one named Elizabeth had ever been mentioned. And what does she mean by, one does not thwart death alone? It seemed to support the theory that his father's death was a hoax. Maybe Elizabeth had helped him pull off the ruse. But why? Where was his father now? How was any of it connected to what was happening in Mason's Corner? He was back to the same frustrating questions. In between his consecutive readings of the letter, he had called Franklin's home. No one had answered, which probably meant that Franklin was visiting the girl at the hospital. David wished he could have gone too, but he was confident in Franklin's ability to dig up the truth on his own. Dinner is served, Naya said. She set a plate in front of David. Hamburger helper a la Naya. Looks delicious. Thank you. She put her own plate down at a spot beside him. There wasn't much else here I could use to make a meal. He smiled. What can I say? It's the bachelor's lifestyle. All we normally have in the fridge is leftover pizza and beer. She clucked her tongue. Halfway through their meal, the telephone rang. Nia handed the phone to David. It was Ruby. Her voice was troubled. David, Franklin's here at the hospital. He wants you and Nia to come immediately. Miss Bennett, you don't sound good. Is everything okay? Please, come right away. There isn't much time. He's in room 104. He's been admitted as a patient. Admitted? David's stomach plummeted. Come right away, Ruby said. She hung up. David stared at the telephone, numb. Is something wrong with Franklin? Naya said. He wants us to come see him at the hospital. He's been admitted. Oh no, why? Ruby wouldn't tell me. He stuffed the letter in the envelope. But we need to hurry. Naya drove them to the hospital. A police cruiser was parked in front of the building. David's heart clenched. This doesn't look good, he said. I wonder if that's the chief. Inside, a police officer, a tall, lanky black man, stood outside Franklin's door, talking to an orderly. That's deputy to do, Naya said. I wonder what's happening. Is that really his name? Sounds like a comic book character. In some ways, he is a comic book character. But he tries to be a good cop. Tries too hard, in fact. When they attempted to walk into the room, the deputy stuck his long arm in front of them, like a traffic guard. Hold on a minute, folks, he said. I know who you are, Miss James, but who's this fella? I'm David Hunter. I live across the street from Franklin Bennett. We're friends. The deputy blinked, lowered his arm. Oh, you're Mr. Hunter's son. Chief Jackson told me you moved into town. What happened to your foot? I twisted my ankle when I was running, David said. He flexed his fingers on the handles of the crutches. He saw no purpose to lying. Why are you here, deputy? Naya said. What's going on? A young lady who was a patient here went into a frenzy, attacked her mother, 
Dr. Dijon, and Doc Bennett, too. She bit Doc Bennett. Naya put her hand to her mouth, shocked. She bit him? David said. Sure did. She's on the loose somewhere. The deputy looked around warily, his hand on the butt of his revolver, as though he might find her lurking in the shadows of the corridor. Orderlies couldn't contain her. She's escaped the hospital, and she's at large. Extremely dangerous, I'd say, judging by the damage she caused here. You be careful, and be sure to alert law enforcement authorities if you happen to see her. We will, David said. Ruby came to the doorway. I'm so glad you're here. Hurry, come in. As David walked away from the deputy, he thought he heard the cop mumble something about aliens invading the town. Odd. The guy was probably talking about a TV show. Franklin looked older than usual. He lay in bed, the sheets pulled up to his frizzy gray beard, his thin arms resting atop the covers. His face was drawn, and his lips were pale. He appeared to be asleep. Ruby went to her husband and tapped his shoulder. Sugar, they're here. David and I settled in chairs beside the bed. Franklin's eyes fluttered open. He was not wearing his glasses, and he squinted at them. Ruby slid his glasses over his face, and Franklin scooted up a few inches, exposing the bandage across the side of his neck. What in the hell? I see the consternation on your faces, Franklin said. He coughed. I come here to visit a young lady, and I wind up as a patient myself. Tell us what happened, David said. Tell us everything. Franklin cleared his throat. Ruby helped him sip water through a straw. Then he started talking. That is what happened, Franklin said, concluding his tale. Now I will ask you, do you believe me? David and Naya looked at each other. She was frightened. He could see, just as he was too. But he could also tell that she believed. And so did he. Vampires, for God's sake. Yes, we believe you, David said. There's too much evidence to deny. We don't have time to waste running around like skeptical fools in horror movies who always get killed by the monster they won't believe in. We believe enough to take action. Exactly, Naya said. Until it's been proven otherwise, it's smart and safe for us to believe the vampires really exist. Good, Franklin said. My friends, if anyone had told me that a time would come where I would accept the existence of vampires, well, let me say that I would have given that individual a sound tongue lashing. This guy we saw earlier, Kyle, is a vampire, but not the head vampire, David said. The word sounded strange coming out of his mouth, but he continued. Diallo, the one who was buried in the cave, he's the big dog. Indeed, Franklin said. We have not encountered him yet, and I believe that we've been fortunate. He has a history of bloodshed. And Kyle, the kid, wants to set him loose, David said. He came here, probably from France, to find his father, a monster. The meaning of what he had said struck him. Kyle had come to this town seeking his father. Hadn't he, in essence, done the same thing? He came to Mason's Corner to learn more about Richard Hunter, to demystify the enigma, to discover the connections that he and his father shared. In a way, 
he and Kyle were alike. I didn't know vampires could have children, Naya said. And if there's a father, David said, there might be a mother, too. What do we know definitively about these creatures? Franklin asked. All of our beliefs are based on novels, film, and myth. Fiction, in other words, not fact. All of our assumptions could be incorrect. These creatures could possess talents that we cannot imagine. They were quiet as the truth of his words sank in. David happened to glance outside the window at the setting sun. Night was coming soon. The day had ushered in frightening revelations. He was afraid to think of what this night would bring. I see what you mean, Naya said. The dogs were a good example. Precisely, Franklin said. The young lady told me the dogs are the master servants. The manipulation of canines is not commonly associated with vampires. You know what scares me, David said. The girl who you said was a vampire, she was bitten by a dog, not a vampire. Naya said, which means a person can be turned, I guess you could call it, by being bitten by one of those mutts that serves the vampires. Like the dogs we saw outside the cave. Franklin nodded somberly. If a number of hounds fall under Diallo's influence, these vampires could spread through town like a brush fire. Dogs tend to travel in packs and could rapidly overwhelm the townsfolks. Infection likely spreads via saliva. Similar to the rabies virus. Do we know how long it took for her to change after she was bitten? David said. He looked to Ruby. Shanice was admitted to the hospital last night, shortly after midnight, Ruby said. She turned into that damnable thing earlier this afternoon. I say around four o'clock as close as I can place it. About 16 hours for the metamorphosis to complete, Franklin said. By that estimate, I only have until late tomorrow morning before I'm no longer myself. Damn it, Frank, don't say that, Ruby said. You're going to be okay. Do you hear me? Ah, uh, I feel the infection spreading like an icy river through my blood. Franklin closed his eyes and drew in a deep breath. He shivered, then looked at them. I fear the medicine cannot stop its progression. My physician, Dr. Hess Green, prescribed a vaccination of human rabies immune globulin. But my symptoms had continued unabated. They worsened, in fact. Therefore, I'm not optimistic. Excuse me. Ruby quickly left the room, dabbing her eyes with a handkerchief. Franklin watched her leave, an expression of deep sadness on his face. David held Naya's hand tightly. We can't lose you, Franklin, David said. We'd be lost. Franklin's eyes were fierce. Listen, you're going to fight this, with or without me. Probably without me. I won't tolerate any talk of giving up, of wallowing in sorrow. There is no time for weakness and self-doubt. He pointed his long finger at David. His voice was like iron. David, this is the challenge, the responsibility for which you have been brought here. He shifted his finger to Naya. You must partner with David. He needs you. David couldn't stop me from helping him if he wanted to, Naya said. But Franklin, David could not finish his sentence. 
the rightness of Franklin's stern words were undeniable. From the beginning, signs had pointed towards a task that he would be obligated to complete. His grandfather's ghost had warned him. Pearl, the psychic, had warned him. His role was clear. But he hesitated to accept the job. This wasn't his hometown. He was only a temporary resident. He planned to eventually leave and return to Atlanta. Why were the going-ons in an obscure Mississippi town that barely merited a dot on the roadmap his problem? Franklin's eyes drilled into his brain. It is your responsibility, David, he said. If you don't believe it yet, you will soon. You've been brought here for a purpose. You cannot run from destiny. Yeah, David said. He sighed heavily. I know deep down that you're right. But what the hell am I supposed to do? That's my question too, Naya said. Are we supposed to start collecting garlic and holy water? Sharpening wooden stakes? Wearing crucifixes? I do not know whether any of the traditional, fictional weaponry will have an adverse effect on them, Franklin said. But I have a handgun, a Smith & Wesson thirty eight at my house. It's in the study, in the bottom left drawer of the desk. It's loaded, and additional ammunition is in the drawer as well. Have either of you ever fired a revolver? I haven't, but she has. David hooked his thumb towards Naya. I have my own piece, Naya said. David can use your gun. Excellent, Franklin said. In the movies, guns never hurt vampires, David said. I guess we'll find out what's fiction and what's real. Shanice bit another man before she escaped, Franklin said. A staff member. He refused to be hospitalized and left to go home. What will become of him? I do not know. He may live with others and attack them too. Thus, their numbers will multiply. He sighed. We need Chief Jackson's assistance to prepare and protect the town. I thought you said earlier that he wouldn't talk to you, Naya said. I think he's afraid, Franklin said, but I know that man's heart. He will rise to the occasion. First, you must convince him. We'll do our best, David said. We'll call him tonight. I doubt you'll reach him, Franklin said. I asked Ruby to contact him after she called you to come here. She cannot reach him. He has gone to hiding, and his own deputy can't locate him. I hope he hasn't left town, Naya said. We'll keep trying until we get a hold of him, David said. There is the key to my home, Franklin indicated a set of keys on the nightstand. Retrieve the revolver, let yourselves in and out as you wish. But I warn you, keep your grubby hands off my crown royal. He laughed, and they joined in. They laughed harder than his small joke deserved, and David believed it was because they were so absurdly stressed out. Anything to break the tension was welcome. I'm exhausted and must sleep, Franklin said. When you leave, please ask Ruby to return. Do you need us to do anything for you, Franklin? David said. Anything at all? Yes. In fact, I do. Name it, Naya said. Pray for me. David and Naya drove away from the hospital. Naya behind the wheel again. David was tired of being a handicapped passenger, 
but his only choice was to lean on Naya. Franklin was right. He did need her. Thank you for helping me with everything, he said. Like I said a few minutes ago, you couldn't stop me from helping you, David. I'm in this until the end. This is my hometown. David leaned back against the seat. Life is so crazy. A little over a week ago, I come here, and the only thing I'm thinking about is hanging out in my old man's crib and learning about him. Now look, I'm a vampire slayer. You aren't lying, Naya said. I don't want to believe that any of this is real. I feel like we're in a nightmare. And if we just hang on and stay alive, we'll wake up and everything will be okay. I know, David said. He gazed out of the window. Twilight was upon them. A silver moon glowed in the sky, like a giant coin. The town, previously so ordinary, had acquired an aura of mystery and menace. As they drove, David watched the houses they passed, and he wondered what was happening within them. Was there another person like Franklin in one of those homes? Bitten by a vampire? Bedridden as the monstrous transformation took place? How about the Labrador that he spotted ambling across the yard? Could it be a minion for the vampire? He felt an acute need to get inside his house and lock the doors. Franklin covered a lot of ground, but there are still some things we need to figure out, David said. Let's talk about them as soon as we get to my place, after we get Franklin's gun. Okay. They arrived at David's home, Naya parked in the driveway. As was his habit when a vehicle parked nearby, King came to the front window. The dog parted the curtains with his snout. He seemed to be grinning. David was eager to hang out with the silly mutt. Do you want to get the gun? David said. I don't know if it makes sense for me to do it, seeing as I have these crutches. Sure, I'll go. I'll wait over here. They got out of the Pathfinder, David maneuvering awkwardly on the crutches. He shut the door, leaned against it. Naya came around the SUV and stood beside him. It's quiet out here. You're right, he said. I don't hear a thing. No dogs barking, no crickets, nothing. The deep silence had an ominous quality, like the silence before a storm, he thought. It's like the silence before a storm, Naya said. Naya, you're reading my mind. A cool wind drifted across them, like a final gasping breath. We're creeping ourselves out, she said. Let's get this over with. I'll be back in a minute. I'll be waiting right here. He watched her stride through the yard and cross the street. It's funny, he thought. I meet the woman in my dreams at a time when I've fallen into a nightmare. Wasn't life bizarre? How bizarre! How bizarre! Da -da 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 -da. Sorry. Ooh, baby! It's making me crazy! Now it's in your head. <laughs> Every time I look around, every time I look around, every time I look around, every time I look, every time I look around. I don't know the words after that. It's like it's in my face, but I don't know if that's the word for sure, and I'm not certain, and I'm not gonna look it up. You do it. I'm not, Google it. I'm I'm too busy. Naya opened the door of the Bennett's residence and slipped inside. 
When Nia stepped into the Bennett's dark, tomb-silent home, a distinct feeling of unreality gripped her. I'm inside the home of a couple that I hardly know, looking for a gun that we'll use to defend ourselves against vampires. She wanted to laugh. Or cry. It was crazy. She believed the threat was real, but it was crazy nonetheless. Nothing ever happened in sleepy, dull Mason's Corner. Now, they were battling the armies of darkness. She giggled, involuntarily, and the sound was so strange in the preternaturally quiet house that she quickly shut up. She clicked on a lamp in the living room. Framed photographs of the Bennets were everywhere. They were a happy, golden pair. They had the kind of fabled, old-school marriage that she'd love to have one day. But first, she would have to survive. She switched on the light in the study. As Franklin had instructed, she located the Smith & Wesson revolver in the drawer. It glimmered like a dark jewel. Although the gun surely only weighed a few pounds, for Naya, it was like lifting a 40-pound dumbbell. The weapon was heavy with its power to spit out death. Carefully, she put the revolver and the box of ammunition in her purse. As she returned to the door, she cut off the lights. The darkness seemed to chase her to the doorway and she hurried to step outside and lock up behind her. Across the street, David rested against the truck. He waved at her. She smiled tightly. God, she wanted so badly to hold him and close her eyes and forget that any of this was happening. Someone could wake her when it was all over. Wake me up before you go. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Franklin's words came to her thoughts. You must partner with David. He needs you. How could she disobey the words of a man who might be, quite literally, on his deathbed? Abandon David? Desert her hometown? She couldn't do it. Not ever. She began to stride across the walkway to the street. She glimpsed quick movement in the corner of her eye. A large shape. Then she heard the low, threatening growl. She stopped her heart clutching. A red Doberman trotted along the curb. There was another dog, a bull mastiff, posted on the opposite curb. The cane out on her side of the street rested on its haunches and watched her. The other hound faced David. These were not the same animals that they had seen outside the cave. How many of these supernatural attack dogs were out here? Her own words, spoken in Franklin's hospital room, came to her. A person can be turned, I guess you could call it, by being bitten by one of those much to serve of vampires. She reached her hand into the purse to get the revolver. The Doberman grumbled, its eyes narrowing. She slid her hand out of the purse. The dog quieted. What do you want? She said in a whisper. What the hell are you here for? Inside David's house, King barked furiously, pawing at the window. The curtain swaying. Like a rapidly moving shadow, a blot of blackness flashed across the middle of the road and stopped. It was Kyle Corot, the vampire. 916-633-1537, Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. 
uh, leave a review on Podchaser, uh, copy that and paste it into Apple Podcasts, and then copy that and paste it into Good Pods. Uh, shout out to everybody who's checking this out on Good Pods. Uh, it's real easy to leave a review there. Like, literally, you just, while you're listening, you can leave a five-star review. Um, and that's dope. We appreciate each and every one of y'all. We're like number two and number one frequently uh, in independent uh, podcasts and also in books, which is dope. Um, you can leave a donation to patreon.com slash single simulcast. Uh, you can also leave a donation to buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. And at uh, Good Pods, you can go to our tip jar and leave a donation there. All money goes towards buying books for this show and movies for hindsight. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly do appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. outro to ratchet book club is by that kid garan and it's called goodbyes you can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat this is single simulcast